I'm David Marcus, host of Drinks with the Deal. And today our guests are Max Frooms, a deal alumnus who now leads a team at Fitch Solutions covering corporate debt and restructuring, and Sujit Indap, the U.S. editor of the Lex column at the Financial Times. Max and Sujit, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us, David. Thanks for having us, David. Great to be here. So today we're going to talk about uh, the book you just published, The Caesar's Palace Coup, how a billionaire brawl over the famous casino exposed the power and greed of Wall Street, which was about the internecine restructuring and bankruptcy of the Caesar's casino empire. So if one of you could start by just setting out the broader story, the Caesar's buyout, and then how the entity ended up in financial distress. Sure. So this story is essentially about a very big private equity buyout that goes very bad and everything that happens after that, who gets to control of it. So if you remember before the financial crisis, there was this string of big LBOs, buyouts, 20, 30, 40 billion dollars, just types of companies you'd never see going private. Uh, there was a great financing environment. These big private equity firms has raised, raised massive pools of money, funds. And so 2006, Apollo and TPG, two of the, the great names in the business had approached Harry Loveman, who's the, the revolutionary CEO of what was then called Harris Entertainment, said, maybe it makes sense to take this company private. There's things we can do with a private company. You don't have to worry about quarterly earnings and you have this great growth plan and there's a chance to take advantage of your balance sheet. So they signed up this deal uh, at the end of 06, peak of that market or that cycle, takes more than a year for that deal to close because of the, the regulatory requirements with gaining licenses. And so in that 14 months, uh, by January of 2008, uh, the world starts to change. Very early parts of the financial crisis start to unfold. And then after the deal closes in 08, uh, obviously Lehman Brothers and everything that happens then. And so tourism to Las Vegas has collapsed. Atlantic City is totally uh, devastated by not just the financial crisis, but regional gaming around the Northeast. And so the owners of this company, Paul and TPG, have to decide something. We want to do what many private equity firms do with the bad investment, which is just hand over the keys to the creditors and move on. Uh, and that happens. They accept it. If you have more winners than losers, you can, you can tolerate something like Caesars. But they have a different idea. They think this business is going to snap back at some point. And so all we need to do is just fund the liquidity of this business until that happens. And so there's no reason to give up. It's a good business. Las Vegas is resilient. And if we hand over the keys, it's just going to be a bunch of hedge funds that are going to make this fortune on, on Caesars. So they do the traditional playbook, which is amend and extend and new financings. And that sort of works for a little while. But ultimately, they embark on a series of much more dramatic and controversial transactions. They actually go to the trouble of setting up a new public company to fund new capital infusions. And a series of transactions happen between the Caesars entities where casinos leave, if you will, the, the credit box, go to this new entity. Ultimately, now the creditors are now hedge funds like Appaloosa and Elliott and GSO. I can jump in on this part. Like the important thing here is, is after the financial crisis hits, the $25 billion in debt that is on the Caesars entity starts to trade at discount. And this is when the distressed debt investors start to jump in en masse. And so by the time 
Caesars has finished this slew of uh, very aggressive transactions to uh, uh, manage their liabilities, uh, the, the debt is held by very sophisticated and aggressive hedge funds like Appaloosa. You're going to have parts of parts of Oak Tree uh, and many others that are known for for jumping in called vulture hedge funds to, to purchase debt at a, at a large discount and, and try to uh, uh, capture a larger recovery, either in bankruptcy or out. What is the investment thesis that Apollo and TPG have when they buy Caesars, and how come that thesis doesn't pan out? Is it just the debt? Is it just the fact that it takes a long time for this business to recover after the financial crisis? Or are there changes in the underlying industry? So when you have $2.5 billion of interest expense, there just is no slack in the system. And so the casinos had been recession resistant before. And the thesis of this was this business is growing, it's doing well. There was this whole expansion plan in Las Vegas, but Harris had little debt at the time. They owned their real estate. So there was just this opportunity to put a lot of leverage on the business. And these two firms thought they could take advantage of that. And then two things happened. Obviously, the business collapsed in the wake of the financial crisis, and there was just this massive uh, amount of interest expense. Uh, But also Atlantic City, which was the third or 40% of the, the profits of the, the Caesars empire co- collapsed in a way that it would never actually recover because of the likes of Pennsylvania and Connecticut uh, instituting gambling. So that that was just unforeseen. So when you have a, a no slack and a significant chunk of the business just changing permanently, that's just uh, a recipe for disaster. You know, in, in these times, more states want the gambling revenues. They all legalize gambling and uh, uh, you know, to create a huge casino economies. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised to see some more of those right now if, if states are hurting for cash. And at one point in the book, you mentioned that Mark Rowan, who ultimately oversees the investment at Apollo, realized that the, the casinos were moving toward generating more of their profits from creating a, an overall experience for the guest and less of their profits from the gambling itself. So was this a realization they had that they they couldn't really act on because of the debt load or was the hit to Atlantic City because of the legalization of gambling elsewhere on the East Coast so significant that, that even dramatically upgrading the casinos uh, properties in Atlantic City wouldn't have made that much of a difference. So I, you know, I think that that was a continuation of at least part of the understanding that Mark Rowan and TPG as well had of Caesars when they purchased it. They when they really courted Gary Loveman, who pioneered the Total Rewards Loyalty Program that allowed the, the you know first the Harris Empire and then they purchased Caesars and then the Caesars Empire to keep more or get a disproportionate market share by mathematically targeting people with promotions to keep them within the Caesars system. And that's so in in addition to just gambling, they wanted to make sure that the right people got the right promotion to the right restaurant or show or hotel or, you know, vacation. And so, you know, they they were able to do more with less at the beginning when Gary Loveman took over at Harrah's. And then once they started to add more luxurious properties, it just added to the the offerings that they had. 
And so the trend away from just an adult playground to a family experience, it, part of that you know, may not be necessarily the case in Las Vegas, was always something they, they thought was going to happen. I, and, and I think they, they thought Caesars was best positioned to take advantage of it. But it wasn't going to compete with the amount of like debt that they had due, and they couldn't quite capitalize on that in the way that they had anticipated to begin with. You bring up an important point, David. Uh, there is actually some very interesting entrepreneurship during those years of distress at Caesars. And so the company knew that they had to deal with this interest and they were doing all these financial transactions, the uh, amend and extend transaction, the refinancing, uh, and then later bringing in new capital. But uh, there was also an opportunity to grow the business. So there's a very fun scene about Harris and Caesars buying Planet Hollywood out of distress. And that leads to the the, the Britney Spears uh, residency, which is just a huge home run. They, I mean, they buy, they buy Planet Hollywood basically, basically nothing, and it turns into this huge property uh, with the help of Britney Spears. Uh, they buy a, uh, an upstart mobile gaming business in the very early days of that of that industry. Uh, they pay $100 million or something called Playtica. That turns into a huge uh, home run, which... Uh, uh, ends up helping solve the bankruptcy years later, uh, and that business now is worth a billion dollars or more in the public market. So there are very interesting things going on at the business besides just this like fight with creditors. Could you talk a little bit about the relationship between a CEO Gary Loveman and David Bonderman at TPG and Mark Rowan? At Apollo, because it it seems very typical of the the relationship between the, the CEO at a, at a company and the executives at buyout shops, who who often have an ambivalent relationship. To start off with, Gary Loveman was you know. He, he was running Caesars as a public company by the time that, that TPG and Apollo came knocking at his door. And he had overseen you know, remarkable growth from, you know, I think $14 a share was where it was trading when he, when he took over. And it was about $40, $45 a share. But he still felt, A, it was incredibly undervalued compared with what he thought were similar companies in the public markets. And it was, it was just annoying to be beholden to shareholders every three months. And so along come Mark Rowan and David Bonderman. And it, you know, they really appealed to, to Loveman on several levels. You know, they, they appealed to him as, you know, first, they would unshackle him from the public markets. Second, they could actually provide the, you know, the value for the company that he thought that it was worth. And third, they appealed to him as what he found to be intellectual peers who would really enhance the things that he was able to do with his own brilliance and the kind of a cadre of executives that he'd hired in the, in the mold of, you know, his academic background. And Sajid has a lot, you know, a couple more insights uh, into how that played out. Yeah. I mean, I think what's interesting and Max touched upon this is that Gary Loveman is a franchise player himself. Uh, we get into this book. He's a this brilliant uh, academic who has a PhD from MIT. He revolutionizes the science around marketing of, uh, of gaming and casinos. And so when Paulo and TPG come knocking, they don't want dramatic changes. They like what he's doing. They just want to buy his business and put more leverage on it and let it keep growing. 
one of the interesting things that happens though, to your point, David, is just there how that relationship changes. Like after the after the deal is closed and the world falls apart and there's all this debt they have to deal with, which is arguably the, is the number one issue at the company. It's less about being a marketing whiz, although they're trying to grow the business, and more about just staying alive. And those skills are very different. He wasn't accustomed to that. He wasn't Gary wasn't accustomed to that or prepared for that. And those relationships fray over time as the company continues to struggle. And he just signed up for something that he didn't. He got something he didn't sign up for. Uh, there was going to be this wealth creation opportunity for him, which is a big part of management buyouts and leverage buyouts. Obviously, that didn't happen. And so, how this vision for these three transcendent figures falls apart is a backdrop for the Caesar saga. And the heart of your book is the machinations among the distressed investors who are a a not entirely appealing group of people. These are incredibly tough, sharp elbowed operators. Tell us a little bit about that world, about how you got into it and how you evaluated the various figures you were dealing with. Uh, like that, my background was a, a distressed debt focused reporter for years and years and years. And, and, uh, and this was a great vehicle to, to kind of like tell uh, that story. And that's actually, you know, one of the uh, seeds that got planted and ideas behind writing this book. And really, it, like distressed debt investing can be traced back to, you know, Michael Milken and, and Drexel and the, and the boom in uh, junk bonds and uh, uh, funding buyouts with high yield debt and, and levering up companies to the point where a lot of them started to fail and needed to be restructured in chapter 11. And this group of investors that, uh, you know, pejoratively called vulture investors back in the day, you know, but really distressed debt investors were kind of misfits to begin with. They couldn't really get the, the best jobs on Wall Street. But when people started to see the types of returns that they were getting, I became more and more competitive and sought after uh, to the point where you arrive at at, at Caesars, you know, several years after the great financial crisis, when uh, a great number of, of, you know, like legendary distressed debt investors, uh, you know, firms like Centerbridge and Solus and Silverpoint and uh, 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 Brigade, and, you know, many others had you know, made lots of money uh, the, the, in investing in companies that had either gone under or had seen their debt trade you know, at, a, at a substantial discount and then recover. So at this point, you have incredibly sophisticated and and competitive and aggressive funds that are doing this type of investment, you know, jumping into a situation like Caesars. And because it's more and more competitive, there were fewer great opportunities. And so you had to get more, I guess, just more aggressive. uh, And you have to have a, a great understanding of the uh, of the law, of the credit documents, and in addition to finance and the underlying business, and so that was really where you know those three skill sets and knowledge bases met. Uh, was you know seen very well in, in this case, and and they all picked a, uh, either a tranche of debt or across the debt stack in in Caesars, 
and would trade in and out depending on how they thought the case was going and how they were weighing the legal claims that uh, they they could potentially have against Caesars and the owners. And it you know and it made for some some really cutthroat deal making and drama. Uh, you know, and I really kind of <laughs> provided for the ultimate tension, which was between this group of, of incredibly sophisticated and well-funded, uh, you know, most notable among them being uh, David Tepper, who was really you know, dealing with using most of his own money at this point, willing to stand up to TPG and Apollo, because not, not many people were and, or are. Uh, and, uh, and it, it, it was, it was, it was really, you know, what we, what we, what's in our book title, a billion, a billionaire brawl. Distrust investing it has always been a, a, a nasty game in, in large part because these investors are, are fighting over a, a pie that's that's shrinking. So th- this is not about wealth creation. Every every cent that one investor gets comes from another investor. And yet in, in this situation, even a bankruptcy veteran like Jim Milstein says that there seems to be a, a, a real genuine, intense dislike among some of these parties. Is, is that performative or, or did that go beyond the dynamic that distressed investing imposes on its participants? In M&A, which you cover, David, uh, there's something called deal fever, where like everyone gets excited about the deal, the buyer, the seller, and the price keeps going up because people just, there's just this like natural escalation. And, but that's, that's kind of a happy feeling, at least in, in the context of a traditional MA deal. I think in this case, it's the opposite where there's this, uh, as Max, Mexican said, this cutthroat fight, which, which escalates into something much, uh, harder. And so, this case is very, very personal, more so than your typical uh, distressed debt case, as you uh, point out, David, and if you read the book, you'll notice that. Uh, and a part of that is because, one, there's just a lot of dollars at work and there's a real chance to make money for people who are, who are savvy. But two creditors in the junior, two key creditors in the junior group, Appaloosa and Oak Tree, very much make this a personal fight because there is there are these controversial transactions which are the subject of fraudulent transfer uh, allegations and breaches of fiduciary duty. And the liability in those transactions, theoretically, which are described in, in, in an examiner's report, which is a big part of bankruptcy, uh, that, that liability flows up to the individual directors uh, of Caesars, which are the Apollo and TPG principles, as well as the Caesars management. And a big part of their legal strategy is to say, Hey, you guys are on the hook for these breaches of duty, fiduciary duty, and it's going to come out of your pocket. So we're going to chase the money all the way up to you. And the the crescendo of the story involves like the personal liability of of these Apollo and PPG parties. And so for that reason, this is an extra uh, an extra personal case because there is this part of the story about truly making individuals pay money out of their pockets. And Appaloosa and Oak Tree parties. Uh, have some dark humor around that. There's jokes about orange jumpsuits and sending people to jail and taking people's houses. Uh, in fact, this is also it's not criminal. It was just a it was just like funny inside joke that they made up. But in fact, it, that just reveals just how truly personal this became, and it it goes to the fact that there is uh, the specter of personal liability in in the Caesar story. 
Is Caesars a, a turning point in distressed investing and bankruptcy? Are there things we see after Caesars? Are, are there innovations in the Caesars restructuring and bankruptcy that continue to resonate that have changed the game in some way? Yeah, I, you know, Caesars was it was not only a culmination of everything that had come before in the, in the world of distressed debt investing and restructuring in Chapter 11. It then became, you know, yes, a, a turning point and a model for how things uh, would become and are in this day and age and how people participate in this market. And, you know, and not in the ways you would think either. You, you would think that in this case, you see that Apollo, after doing all these asset transfers prior to what wound up being a, a Chapter 11 restructuring, got challenged in court and lost. And so maybe the takeaway would be don't do that. However, they immediately after this case was over, raised the largest private equity fund in history at $25 billion at the time. And uh, you know, because LPs saw how hard they fought for, you know, for them and and also, there were lessons in Caesars about how to uh, perpetrate these types of transactions. Whereas if you did any type of asset transfer or liability management in those situations, when your company's bordering on the edge of insolvency without an independent director or an independent board, then you're going to be in trouble. But if you did it with an independent board and independent director, and both of which happened in Caesars, providing like the perfect case study for people taking, you know, taking notes and trying to apply it to future transactions, then you appoint a stable of independent directors, which is exactly what's happened. So any, any law firm right now that comes in to advise on liability management exercises for a company that's heavily indebted and, stru- like, and struggling to stay afloat and maybe needs to shift some assets around to do some creative financing, a couple come to mind like Travelport or Cirque du Soleil or uh, Serta Simmons. You get independent directors to, uh, well, I guess not sort of with the asset transfers, but you get independent directors to bless these transactions. <laughs> and, and so the lesson was, let's not do these things that will compromise our creditors. It was, let's do them in a, a more clever and sophisticated way. And I think that's there's numerous lessons like that 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 people took from Caesars, you know. And it, it wasn't just to you know play nicer; it was actually play smarter. And has that been reflected in the the pricing of debt in in buyouts after the Caesars bankruptcy, or or is it too soon to tell? Well, I think the the biggest sort of macro trend in the last since the financial crisis last whatever twelve years that is now is that there is just so much liquidity and there's just these big pools of capital that need to earn rates of return and with risk free rates basically at zero for a very long time or near zero that's made it an issuer's market. So Max covers this closely, but. The debt terms continue to degrade. Occasionally, there's these moments of pushback when something truly egregious happens in a particular situation. But in general, the music is still playing. And so all these side firms have to more or less accept pretty aggressive, issuer-friendly, private equity-friendly friendly terms. And that is uh, that is a backdrop for all these fights is that once it gets into some kind of distress situation, there's all sorts of flexibility that's been, that's been intentionally built in. And the consequence are these transactions or these fights between private equity firms or 
companies and then their creditors. And that, I think, is the, the driving force in what we've seen over since from Caesars uh, onward. Yeah, I, I know. I would add that a lot of creditors wished that there, you know, that there would be more. Like immediately after Caesars, there was, you know, there was like briefly what was known as the Apollo Premium, where if they wanted to, if they wanted to lever up a company, then Apollo, like basically that debt would be a little bit more expensive because people were afraid, uh, like they were afraid that no matter what, you know, Apollo is going to pull one over on me because their credit docs were all just, you know, full of holes and uh, that would be taken advantage of. However, shortly after after that, it was just the credit market was so hot and there's so much money coming in from CLOs and high yield funds that the issuers could get away with issuing documents that had very few protections. They're very loose. They're you know, called covenant light and get very good terms. And there was nothing that credit investors and fixed income funds could really do to tighten up those documents. And that still exists today. That dynamic still exists today. And has that created a a somewhat more robust market for distressed debt, maybe lightly distressed debt because you have so few protections as a creditor that for certain kinds of credit funds, if they see any kind of risk at an investment, will sell that debt into a secondary market? Yeah, in some ways, it's the opposite. It's like, it makes it more difficult. In some ways, it's the opposite because companies and their private equity sponsors have so much more leeway to uh, extend the runway before creditors can accelerate or ask for uh, you know new concessions. So it makes it a little bit tougher on the distressed debt investor. I think it, it raises the bar. You know, so what you're seeing now is a lot of the, the parties in the Caesars bankruptcy, uh, the, the, the largest ones are the ones who can really throw their weight around. And the way to make some ec- like extra money here is to buy up a huge portion of this, like of some sort of distressed situation, and then strike a deal with the company to get some some concessions, some fee to provide some senior, more expensive debt. You know, and some of the smaller uh, distressed debt investors are are left with just you know the scraps and and you know buy low, sell high type of opportunities. And then finally, your book was just published in mid-March and has done very well. As you were writing it, it, anyone who who writes a book like this has to have visions of a movie or an HBO series. Who do you envision playing uh, some of the figures in the book? Well, I think the key protagonist, uh, one of them is uh, Mark Rowan, the the Apollo co-founder, who has this vision along with David Bonham and the by Caesars and profit from Vegas continuing to grow uh, at the time in 2006. I think uh, Steve Carell would be a great Mark Rowan. That's that's one that's that struck us. What's interesting about this story is that uh, when it's one of the themes, there's a lot of like men between say 30 and 35 who are like the key uh, the key players on a day to day basis, and they're very kind of violent clashes uh, punctuate many scenes. And so there's a lot of a lot of actors of that age who can be in this movie, whether it's one of the Hemsworth brothers or one of the Chris's. Who else, Max, did we like? Oh, we got a, we got a number one, right? Like I think Aaron Paul could be in there. Jack Quaid, <laughs> some recently canceled actors, unfortunately, like Shia LaBeouf and Army Hammer would have been pretty well cast. 
in these roles, but we got to find, you know, it's tough to be a Hollywood executive nowadays. So we got to find out who's going to be available. There's even roles for, for Vin Diesel and Sandra Bullock in here too. <laughs> Fantastic. Max, Sujit, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having us, David. Try me, David. This was great. It's yeah, it's great to work with you again after uh, uh, all these years. Awesome. For drinks with the deal, I'm David Marcus. <laughs> <laughs>